This podcast is sponsored by our good friends who have become patrons via the Patreon crowdfunding site. If you'd like to join them, helping us to produce more podcasts, films and other shows, please go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to find out more. Hello, welcome to the Prehistory Guys podcast. I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this evening, what have we got in store? Wow. Do you know what? I have to confess, it's another one of those uh, sessions where I have to confess a ridiculous amount of ignorance for something that has been known about for actually rather a long time, hasn't it? It This is a site that was discovered in 1980, or it was excavated in 1980, 1981. And I might have heard of it before, but I just ignored it. I don't know about you. Well, there was something about the name the Conbury <laughs> anomaly that kind of draws one in. And to be fair, it's good old Twitter for me. Um, okay. One of our good friends on, on Twitter um, c- celebrated the arrival of uh, this paper that uh, we've taken most of our information from not long ago. Yeah, um, and I think it was the headline of the paper that we're getting our information from. It's called "A Meeting in the Forest." It is Hunters rather and farmers isn't it? The, yeah. yeah, so so I rather like that idea. Yeah, and uh, I hope you know as as you listen, um, you get a flavour of what it, what is that excites because it's one of those places that evokes um, the mind to create a story to explain it. Yeah, yes. it's, it's, and, it's very and, and particular. It, the, the lovely thing about it is that whichever way you interpret the data, you are left with an event. Yes. You yeah. you can't yeah. avoid the fact that this was an event. And, and you I can't avoid people. love that. No, no. It, and it's you can't glorious. avoid people either, yeah. Uh, so we probably ought to tell folks we're talking about the Coneyberry anomaly. Yeah. Uh, and the Coneyberry anomaly, you know, as Michael said, oh, that, that sounds interesting. And I thought, because uh, partly because of my previous stuff with geology, I thought anomaly. Now yeah, right, I can leave that. And <laughs> but the Coneyberry anomaly. <laughs> the irony is that it was called an anomaly simply because it showed up as an anomaly in the geophysics. But they kept yeah. the name because, well, it was an anomaly. And. <laughs> <laughs> now I wonder. I wonder if we can blame Julian Richards for that. I think we should um, do. I think it would be rude not to. In fact, <laughs> well, fair dues because he was in charge of the uh, Stonehenge Environs project at the yeah. time, and one of their first jobs in doing that, he was commissioned <laughs> to do that under the auspice of um, Wessex Archaeology, uh, and at the time. Uh, they were beginning to expand the investigations beyond the monument itself and and start to really include um, mm. the the Stonehenge landscape. And one of the first places that he went to um, investigate, to survey, was about uh, 1.2 kilometres, 1.5 kilometres southeast of the Stonehenge monument yeah. to where they knew from previous surveys there was a henge. Coneybury Henge. Yes. Um, so they were investigating that, and they did a proper excavation on that. But it was in the sur- surveying of Coneybury Henge that they came across via the magic of uh, magnetometry. Is that right? Yes. Yeah. They came across the 
Coneybury Anomaly, which is mm. barely a few yards outside the northeast entrance of the Coneybury Henge. Yes, which is uh, which is a rather lovely uh, element in itself. Actually, the proximity mm. to the Henge. Mm. Um, I, where do you start? Where do you start with this? The, I think the start, the, the starting, real starting point is to get this firmly in people's minds. Is that although it was found adjacent to the Henge, it predates the Henge by about a thousand years. Yes, yeah. and, and that, predates activity. You know, the the building of Stonehenge itself by a thousand, yeah. more than a thousand years. It's, so it's it, not really part of this a sort of Stonehenge landscape. You can't really include it in that. It's 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 more. It maybe you could include it. You know, if you're talking about, uh, is it Blick, Blick Mead? Yeah, Blick Mead. Yes, yes, yes. Blick Mead. Yeah, um, which is only a few. You know, another um, kilometer away or so yes. from where we're talking about. You know, it almost makes you wonder if we ought to be renaming the Stonehenge landscape. Because yeah. Stonehenge came so long after so much activity that went on here. Yeah, isn't that true? Isn't that true? Uh, but this, because this is old. I mean, this has been dated to uh, three thousand eight hundred to three thousand seven hundred BC. Yeah. I mean, that's that's nearly six thousand years old. It, you know, we're talking about a seriously ancient event and as we said before you know that's what's so exciting about this mm. it is an event and we'll we're, we're going to try to unravel that for you as best as we can um, and the, the further bit of context i suppose is that we are in early neolithic we're in early stages of the introduction of farming into these lands mm. so that's another thing to keep in mind as we as yeah we go it, it's very much at that crossover point between mm -hmm. Uh, Mesolithic and Neolithic, and in actual fact, that's something that we were talking about not long ago. That these arbitrary lines in the sand, if you like, that that we have a name for something, if it's uh, you know, if it's Mesolithic, and then you just nudge uh, a, a little bit into uh, into <laughs> you know the more recent history, and we call it Neolithic. Yeah. But it's just yeah. a line in the sand. Uh, we should probably start blurring those edges a little bit more freely. I think. Good point. Can you describe the anomaly? It is not an anomaly, but a pit. That's it. A pit. Simple, a pit. Straight, straightforward. And the lovely thing about this is it's actually not a very deep pit either. <laughs> it's deep enough to have been a serious piece of work for some guys digging a hole. Yeah. But it's only, what is it, Mike? It's one point, what is it? 1.25 metres deep. 1.25 metres and uh, two it's meters a rectangular across. pit, two metres across. Oh, no, no, it's not. It's it, it's quite circular. Not not perfectly circular, but it's not, oh, really? it's not a I rectangle. Thought it was, really? I really? thought I read that it was rectangular. No, I'm looking at the plan of it here. It is definitely circular. Either way, it's a pit that's a metre and a quarter deep, which could easily have been dug in, uh, uh, in, a, in a morning with a couple of guys. Mm. Uh, and <laughs> oh lordy okay well i mean the thing is that the the, the 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 essential thing of all of this is what they extracted from that pit and mm. what they extracted from it was an absolute wealth of animal bones this was the remains of a hell of a party this was mm -hmm. a, a serious feast going on 
Uh, or it's, it's certainly the result of feasting. Are you being picky, Mr. Bean? N- no, uh, it's it's not that. It's that um, it, it is not obvious from the numbers of the animals, uh, the, the remains in there, that it was one singular event. That's extrapolated from the evidence and the dating of the bones, and uh, et cetera, yes. et cetera. Yes. So, it, you know, to come to it freshly... You couldn't begin to say that it was from one particular event. It might have been a series of events over time that had resulted in this. But we've sort of given the game away already, though, that it is most likely that this was one from one singular event. And hmm. there's a lot of animals involved. Yes. Beside yeah. the animals, the important other aspects of what's inside the pit are blades and bladelets. Yes, a lot of flint, blades and bladelets. And a lot of pottery as well. Yes, indeed. Um, vessels um, of varying sorts. Yes, it, it's interesting where there are, there are various debates about the weathering on the pottery as well as to whether yeah. it was just weathering from being in situ or whether it was weathering from having been tossed onto a midden. So there have been all mm. sorts of arguments going on about this. But uh, but yes, it's uh, the the fact that the uh, the pottery adds to the uh, to the evidence for it being uh, a feasting event, mm. and uh, it, it one of the things that is most extraordinary here is that the predominance of bones are domestic cattle mm-hmm. and roe deer. Yeah, there are others, but. The majority of the bones are made up of cattle and roe deer. Mm. Now, uh, the the isotopes, or is it too early to kick off on isotopes, Mike? Well, we should just say about that, that doesn't happen anywhere else. The no. combination of wild animals and domestic mm. animals yeah. Yeah, remains happen in the same uh, there, there is, in the same There place. is one pit that... Uh, that I've read about, that is uh, the fir tree field shaft where there are roe deer bones, mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. the thing is that those roe deer bones, it is it is most likely that uh, that this pit had been dug, and the poor bloody roe deer. Am I allowed to say bloody? And the poor roe deer actually fell into that shaft. Oh, uh, really? By accident. That must have been careless. They must have been roaming through there at night and fallen in the shaft. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so the thing is that the only other known shaft uh, uh, that you could maybe compare, uh, the evidence is really that no, it's just an accidental comparison, and it's not yeah, the same yeah. at all. So, this yeah. is quite unique from that point of view. All the domesticated cattle were female. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, quite a lot of juveniles as well. Mm. So it does speak to organised um, domestic cattle. Yes. They, there, there have been uh, a lot of debates about the fact that they're all females. The general thinking seems to be that you're bringing your stuff to the party and uh, and so what you're bringing is, you know, the, the, the individuals in your dairy herd that are maybe not performing as well as uh, as many of the others uh, which okay you can understand that as an interpretation it does it does make sense i suppose the other thing is do we know that the cattle were butchered and the, the, the were butchered on site 
uh, or, you know, were freshly killed. That's an important point to make. Yeah, it's really interesting that none of these animals came from far away. In fact, That's even right. even yeah. the, uh, uh, and this is from the strontium analysis, yeah. the... The isotopic analysis generally, and good grief, did they go through every possible isotopic <laughs> element that you could have. But it was the strontium analysis that showed that all the animals were local and even the the roe deer, so even the wild animals, mm-hmm. came from a maximum of, I think it was 12 kilometres away. It Something certainly, like- It was close <clears throat> by. Yeah. Uh, so... So nothing had been brought very far. And the actual butchery, in fact, this is an element that I found really interesting, that the roe deer, the remains of the roe deer were in the pit in their entirety. So mm-hmm. so entire skeletal remains, if you like, okay. were tossed into that pit. Yeah. But the cattle remains, there yes. were no limbs or very, yes. very few limbs. Yeah. Now, the interpretation of that makes complete and utter sense, is that the actual body mass of a cow in comparison with a roe deer is vast. I mean, I, do you know what? I can't remember the actual number, but it... 700 term- kilograms for a cow. Okay, and 25 for yeah. a roe deer. So you can see straight I away... Did a, I did a double take when I read that. <laughs> what? Well, do you know what? I could understand the 25, but it was 700 for a... Really? 700 really? for a cow? Wow. Wow. Okay. Um, so you can see that uh, they they were making... The archaeologists who were interpreting all this were making a distinction between the actual difference between a 25 kilogram roe deer Mm. and a 700 kilogram cow and the perceived difference of you know imagine that you haven't got scales you're not you're not weighing your cows or whatever (laughs) so you look at a cow and you look at a deer and you think well okay how many deer will you give me for my cow (laughs) and they were trying to make their best guess on that and they came the archaeologists came down on well we think it's seven we think we think (laughs) we, we think seven deer Make a cow, and I, I, you know, I found that really quite. Um, I don't know. Yeah. I found that quite cute, really, because it's well. No, you would be thinking in those terms. And do I think yeah. seven deer? I think. Do you know what? I think seven deer for a cow is quite generous, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah. Regardless of kilograms. Um, yeah. But but the thing is, the important thing here is that the the fact that there are no cattle limbs in the pit. The inference there being that the meat is being shared amongst a broader community, a wider spread community. So, you know, you can imagine you've got this major feast and you've eaten all the deer and you've eaten, you know, you know maybe you've spit roasted the cows, but you've cut off. I mean, you look at the size of a, of a cow's back legs. Mm-hmm. You cut those off and you carry that back to... A community that live, you know, wherever over the other side of the valley, what have you? That that a cow's leg, good grief, that's a lot of meat. That's going to feed a lot mm. of people just in itself. Uh, so the the kind of the the inferences of social values and social interactions from from this are very very telling. Yeah, and talking about carrying things away, it's important to note that this pit is not part of a settlement. 
No. It's on, it's on its own. Mm. Forget about the henge. That's got nothing to do with it. Mm. it this pit is on its own. No uh, indication of, of settlement or community around yeah. it. It, it. It stands alone. Um, it does. Uh, pro and the probably is, in the forest. Probably, you know, not yes. in open land. Yes, probably in the mm -hmm. forest. I, I like to think if it was close to the edge of the forest, so it's a meeting of people from different environments. I mean, the, the archaeologists have interpreted this as the meetings of two peoples, at least two peoples, uh, so two different lifestyles. You've got, uh, you've got the early Neolithic style of culture, and you've got the Mesolithic hunter-gatherer, mm -hmm. who, again, it's that line in mm. the sand again. You've got these people who, they're coexisting in an environment. And these people came together. Uh, you know, oh God, it's so evocative, isn't it? How they could have been bringing these ideas together. Who can bring what to the party? We're all sharing this. Well, we've got cows. We've got because we've been domesticating cows for a little bit, uh, a while now. <laughs> and you, so the guys who are the hunter gatherers, well, you know, they go hunting deer. They've got their clearings in the forest, maybe where they, uh, you know, they take out roe deer regularly, and they bring those to the party. Oh, it's yeah. just so exciting. I th I think actually the analysis, the um, strontium analysis, says the cattle were from at least three, maybe even four uh, different places. So you've got several representatives from farming type yes. communities, and may and maybe one yes. from yes. a existing yeah so you're uh, so you're really talking uh, about community you know maybe four different communities who are coming together in this place mm -hmm. uh, i mean it must have been momentous and we kind of know that this wasn't a a n other farmer who happened to do a bit of hunting at the side the game uh, is given away by the fact of the flint assemblage yes. the lithic assemblage well, which points to the distinct presence of Mesolithic. Michael is putting his fingers in the air. R Wrigley uh, yes. rabbit ears, right? <laughs> in inverted commas. <laughs> Mesolithic in inverted commas, hunter-gatherer yeah. folk, yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's intriguing, isn't it, that, you know, again, you know, going back to the lines in the sand, you know, that we have these arbitrary lines for... Uh, you know, it's like crossing a date line, isn't it? You know, when you go from uh, from Paleolithic to Mesolithic to Neolithic to uh, Bronze Age to Iron Age, these edges would have been blurred by hundreds of years. But geography throws it out completely as well, as we know. The European mainland was into the Neolithic way before the, uh, yes. we call it uh, the Mesolithic, uh, Neolithic transition in Britain. Yes, yes. Um, it's true. Do you know what? Something that I find intriguing from the remains in the pit, because, yeah. you know, we, we've talked about cattle and we've talked about roe deer, but there were uh, pigs. Yes. There were red deer. Yes. There were roe deer. Red deer. Roe deer, yeah. And there were beaver. Yeah. Um, and what? is so intriguing about that is that the predominance, massive, massive, massive predominance is cattle and roe deer. And it's almost as if the pigs and the red deer and the beaver 
are almost token. They're, you know, they've been, I don't know, I mean, that's my interpretation, is that they've been brought there by communities who, you know, they, they can't bring so much, but they are an important, you know, it's like bringing these people together. Maybe the trapping of beaver. And the fishing of fish is a bit more specialised within these communities. What can we tell? What can we say? What can we, you know, it's just pure guesswork. It is guesswork. But to, to me, it's makes of, you've got this coming together of peoples in an event. Who can bring what to the party? Because, you know, we do the same now, don't we? Mm. We, we have a social event now where we say everybody brings something for everybody to share. Yeah, it's it's a it's an aspect of human social culture. We do it, mm, mm. and so to have something six thousand years ago, the best part of six thousand years ago, where everybody brings something to the party, doesn't matter what it is. You just you bring what you can, and uh, and that's the mix that you're you're left with. It's just it's just a party. It's a Saturday night party. Well, the thing about that, this is a, a blooming big one. You know, this is designed to bring a large amount of people together at the same time. Uh, yes. Because, you know, seven road year, you know, ten, uh, ten cow well, uh, <clears throat> bearing in mind that some of them were juveniles, you know, we've got calves in there as well. But nevertheless... But it's, it's interesting, actually, of... that the majority are, uh, are young animals. I, I found that... Um, no, I didn't find it surprising. I just found it notable that... Um, that a few of these animals made it to significant maturity. They were they were yeah. all dispatched pretty young, um, and you know we still do that today. And I must admit yeah. that my my thinking prior to this, my thinking was, well, we we do it now because of economic convenience really you know we yeah. we rear things to a point where we can make enough money out of them and then we dispatch them but this kind of implies that they reach a certain age where they're just easier to deal with does that make any kind of sense you know what i mean for example i don't even know how to articulate this but you know if you had an aurochs for example that's a ridiculously difficult thing to deal with mm. If you killed an aurochs, this massive, massive beast, you might as well have a small elephant, you know that, uh, that or a mammoth, or <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the amount of work involved, the amount of energy involved in making that, well, cookable for want of a better expression, that maybe you're actually more energy efficient if you take something that is a significantly younger creature. That you can mm -hmm. deal with, you know. I mean that, and that's maybe, that's just maybe. a random, random thought. But uh, yeah, yeah. I just found it intriguing, <clears throat> really. And and these would be dairy animals as well. Don't forget that. So yeah. you know, uh, so they have a utility uh, mm. in terms of keeping them alive longer. But it's not unusual uh, in these circumstances and in these kinds of deposits uh, to find uh, animals that have been dispatched at a, at a very young age, actually. Uh, so, that, so there may be something else going on, shall we say, you know, in terms of their relationship to their animals and the yeah, age I, and Yeah, I found it intriguing on. that if you make comparisons with other excavations at other sites, that you find those in other excavations and there are none here at all mm. uh, 
which I, I don't know what that says, but in turn, when you compare the sizes of creatures that we're looking at in these in excavations like this, where uh, so the cows are the biggest by a long way. Uh, so in terms of body mass, you've got cows and then you've got pigs. And then the red deer, but there's hardly any red deer, just a couple. Yeah. And then roe deer, there's loads of them. And I suppose, well, how do you want to interpret that? Do you want to interpret that? that there My instinct small... is to interpret that as availability in terms of yes. the wild creatures. You've got roe deer all over the place. And yeah. red deer are a bit special if you can find them. Something like that. The other avenue that seems to have been gone down as far as interpreting this uh, event is to put it into one of two categories. If you've got an event like this, if you've got a party, say, yeah. of this size, it has a purpose. There's yes. usually some kind of a, a, a political purpose behind it uh, yes. in, in terms of then the, an expectation of a result from doing things. It, it's in order to have an effect. And there are two sorts of effects that you can have or uh, desired outcomes you can have, i.e. a unifying thing where you're bringing people together to unify their purpose, to uh, settle old, you know, uh, hashes maybe, uh, just to make sure that people coming away from this event are on the same page, as it were. You know, they understand each other as, as people. It's a unifying uh, event. And then there's the other, that another kind of event like this that can be identified is where a particular leader wants to establish their authority so they cast a big party in their name yeah. Uh, to which people bring stuff in honour of that yeah. central authority or something like that. Two very distinct types of gatherings with distinct outcomes. Yeah. It is suggested that uh, this event is of the former, mm. that it's a, a, a unifying event because there seems to be a unity on, in the way that, uh, that people, things have been brought to this party. What mm. do you think about that? Well, I agree with you. I, I think, you know, going back to the strontium analysis again, that the, the inference was that, as you said, four groups of people. I think it was four, wasn't it? That four distinct groups of people. Well, the, the, the cattle have definitely come from three, probably four. Different, yes, distinct and, and, and then you've got the road here. So the inference is that it's uh, four uh, groups of people bringing uh, stuff to the table, literally. Okay, that is an interpretation, but it seems a reasonable one. You know, it's important, again, to emphasise the period that we're talking about here. We're talking about yeah. nearly 6,000 years ago. Mm. Populations of, you know, this, this crossover period of farmers and hunter-gatherers who are still co-inhabiting in a landscape, maybe they're distanced by... You know, not all that far, but bearing in mind that so much of the landscape was still forested. So yeah. these people might not have come across each other. Well, you know, they, they knew that they knew each other were there, but they might not have seen each other very often at all. So to to get to this point in cultural development where we know that we're all stepping on each other's toes one way or another, 
that we have to do something to make sure that, you know, we don't want this to be a war zone all the time. Well, the thing was that, you know, at this point, um, uh, with uh, farmers having come over from the continent, Mm. the transition from, you know, from uh, the appearance of agriculture was quite abrupt. Yes. So, you know, these newcomers, these incomers, are going to be having an impact, you know, on the pre-existing hunter-gatherers. And there's got to be a transition period where both exist, coexist, you know, the newcomers and the old inhabitants whose land, you know, could reasonably say, well, this is our place, you know, kind of thing. So... There's yeah. good, strong reasons. There are good motivations to get everybody together and uh, yeah, good old time to uh, yeah. you know try. Really, and- you see, it makes it, it makes me wonder. To be honest, it, you know that you've got the, the hunter gatherers who've been there forever, and they catch and they eat roe deer, you know, or whatever, you know, uh, on a regular basis. That's their staple. And here are these new people who've come in and they've brought cattle. And that must be a significant thing where, can you imagine, you know, that you've never seen a cow before? Mm. <laughs> you know, and suddenly somebody is, <clears throat> is saying, well, I'll see your roe deer and I'll raise you. <laughs> um, and it, it must have been a really interesting thing. No, go and taste this. You'll like it. Yeah. You know, it's it's a bit like the first time when... Uh, when you share anything with uh, with uh, somebody from another culture who they've never tasted, what you know, whatever you like, Turkish delight, you know, yeah, yeah. and and you see that 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 look of utter bliss on their face when they try it for the first <laughs> time, <laughs> and I but, can just imagine that. But here's the thing, you know, in life, in nature, things happen in the margins, and here, if you like, you have got a margin. You've got that uh, point yeah. of contact between uh, one culture and another and the sylvanians yeah it's it's either you know a, a point of abrasion or it's a point of cooperation what's nice you know we could not very nicely take away from this that these guys were really trying to get on with each other Yes. I mean, what have we got? We got one pit in the middle of the Salisbury Plain that we're extrapolating all this from. But that's the fascinating thing about this pit, about this anomaly, is that it's got such particular stuff from 6,000 years ago, which is yeah. anomalous, which you never yeah. find anywhere else. And because of yeah. that, we can start to talk about guys getting together, having a party and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. And we're interpreting it in such specific ways so the invitation is you know to have a look find out uh, just do a search on uh, coneybury anomaly and uh, have a look at the data and and see what you think yeah as something just to start rounding up (laughs) with i just want to report something you know this is a bit of an ethnographic comparison um about 20 oh gosh was it that long ago yeah, i think it i think it was uh probably 18 years ago i was uh, privileged enough to be in argentina in northern argentina at the time of the pachamama festival and we were invited to a family uh, in a village who were having their own little celebration 
I'll try and cut this story short, but in in effect, their celebration, you know, was of uh, uh, smoking uh, a lot of um, uh, coca and uh, in uh, drinking a lot of coke and other s- stuff. Um, but there were pits in the ground. There were pits in the veranda of this uh, small village house. We're talking up in the, uh, you know, it, it, I was suffering from altitude sickness, if that's any help. We're in the deserts with the cactus and the llama and all that kind of thing. Uh, and the eagles soaring overhead. Um, and uh, these pits, and what you do when you're at this kind of a festival, you, you, you eat and you drink and you put stuff that you're eating and stuff that you're drinking, stuff that you're smoking into the pit. You're yeah. giving it to Mother Earth. And uh, it's, it's there's nothing... <laughs> There's there's nothing sacred about it. It doesn't feel sacred. It just feels like a part of life, a part of what you do. You dig a pit, you offer your stuff to, to the earth, and then you march into the field and there's another pit out there and you dance yeah. around that a bit and you throw more stuff in the pit and then you move on to another one. And it just seems so ordinary and yet so illuminating about what this kind of pit in this, you know, not so far away may represent when you've got that. Isn't that, that it's, it's such an interesting comparison because you're quite right. I mean, although it's a little bit different in uh, in, in some other places in South America mm. where you might not necessarily dig a pit, but you always share with Mother Earth. So even if mm. you're having a yeah. drink, you will you will toss a bit of your drink on the grounds just to share it with the earth. Yeah. And I mean, there were packets it, it, of Marlborough going into this pit. You yeah, know? isn't that amazing? You know, you there just you share everything, share yeah. everything. But it, it's an interesting distinction, you know, that that you can look at this, uh, you know, the the pit. Uh, so you can look at the Coneybury pit, and so you can ask the question: Is this a pit where we are sharing with Mother Earth, mm-hmm. or is this essentially a midden? Because we don't yeah. want a mountain of this stuff sitting on top of the. Uh, earth that is going to stink to high heaven in a couple of days time i don't know mm-hmm. i don't know it's uh, it's a nice <laughs> thought that it's your money takes yeah. your choice as uh <laughs> yeah as um as so often we do yeah. So there we are. I don't think there's really much aspect of uh, the Canterbury so. anomaly it, it it is the fact that this is so old 3,800, 3,700 BC. And this is a coming together of cultures mm. uh, that, you know, however you want to interpret it, that's what the evidence gives us, mm. that this was a feasting of people coming together. I wonder if they even spoke the same languages. Just, oh, you know, now you've touched upon one. We'll never yeah. know that one. But no. yet, and yet again, you talk about evidence. Don't forget, the majority of this evidence is fresh from the application of modern techniques, of new techniques yeah. to the exist, yeah. pre-existing uh, uh, materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you really want to look into it, if you do uh, do Google it, there are some very mm-hmm. good scientific papers on the Coneybury anomaly. And you know, you can look at the all the isotopic analysis of the bones that they took out of the pit, and it's it's actually mind-boggling. Yeah. The, uh, the you know that they can tell the the age of the animals and where they came from. 
So there we go. Uh, another one. Isn't a monument. Who knew so much information could come... From a hole in the ground. From a hole in the ground. <laughs> Unless we're talking about Aubrey Hole number seven, that is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's not do that. <laughs> so that's enough about holes in the ground, I think. Uh, it's time to say goodbye. So once again, um, thank you for listening, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. Hope you really got some good stuff out of that. It's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And we'll see you soon. Cheers. Bye bye. Bye, folks. Bye bye. If you're still listening, just a reminder that if you enjoyed this show and would like an opportunity to support us in growing the Prehistory Guys project, the podcasts, the films, the live streaming shows, you can do so via the Patreon crowdfunding platform. Go to patreon.com slash theprehistoryguys to become part of the team, help enable our work going forward, and to unlock special content only available to our patrons. Until the next time, once again, thanks for listening.